Father, we thank you for your word. It is a light unto our paths. We understand you have given it to us to lead us in this world which has so many directions in which it is heading. But we know they all culminate in a life away from you. We ask that you would instruct us, encourage us through your word, help us to be more wise as we go away this morning. And Lord willing, we will do this. We'll trust in your spirit to teach us and guide us and to bring back to remembrance at any time whatever it is we need to know as we go through this passage. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We are currently in Second John and Third John. We're going to try to make it through both of those books. They're very small. And once we're done with that, uh, that will be the second time, if I am correct in checking my computer, that'll be the second time we've made it through the New Testament since 1991. Uh, that's a long time to go through the New Testament twice, but there is so much counsel in there, we want to make sure we get it. And on Wednesday nights, we continue that. We'll probably go into the Old Testament and get through the Old Testament once we get through the um, New Believers material, the basic foundation stuff. But as we get into Second John, since it is so small, it's very critical that we observe what is taking place there, that we interpret what has been given to us as far as information, and then give it the proper application. Again, it's because it's so small, you might think, well, there's not much there. Well, there is actually quite a bit here, and that's why I'm hoping to get through both of these little books in one day today. So it starts off, the elder... To the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth just as the Father commanded us. Now, look up at me. Don't look at the screen. What word did you hear over and over? Truth. It's five times it's listed in there. Now, as a parent, you tell your child something five times. What are you trying to do? You're trying to get a point across, right? And so he's talking about truth. As you go through this particular chapter two, you'll see love. In the NIV, it's mentioned five times. In the original language, it's mentioned four times. And that word is agape. Now, that's different than the storge. That's different than the phileo. The agape is the self-sacrificing love. It's giving of yourself. That's what Jesus did when God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That means he agaped the world. He gave of himself and he put his own wants, cares, needs, and desires to the side. He did the will of the Father for the sake of the individuals that inhabit this world. And so... It's things like that. When you observe a text, you want to pay attention to particular phrases. If words repeat, you want to know what's going on. Then you have to interpret what's going on. And going back to verse 1, you see the chosen lady. Now, the chosen lady, that can be several different things. The chosen lady may be a woman who is prominent in the church, a matriarch, so to speak. It could be. A woman who heads up a home church, not that she is the pastor, because First Timothy prohibits women from being pastors. It's not that they're unworthy, so to speak. It's just how God set it up. God set it up that woman came from man. Man came from 
Jesus himself, the creator of the universe. By him, all things were created. And so he just has a hierarchy. Everybody's job is important. It doesn't mean we need to trample over somebody else's job. Just as a woman in our day and age would want to trample over the men's job, it would be the same as men wanting to trample over Jesus's job. And so it's just something that he has given to us. It's a plan for us down here on earth to follow. And so he talks to this woman, a prominent woman, again, maybe a matriarch, one who is uh, prominent inside the church, or it could be that he's talking about the church itself, kind of being cryptic, not naming exactly who he is writing to. In in 3 John, he actually names somebody, Gaius. Uh, Gaius is in there and he writes the letter to Gaius or Luke wrote to uh, Theophilus. And so in this particular uh, chapter here, it could be because of the Roman persecution, this particular book, that instead of naming somebody in the church, he calls the church this chosen lady. Now, if you know Ephesians chapter 5 and John chapter 3, verse 29, John the Baptist talked about the bride of the bridegroom. We are the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about that. When he talks about husbands and wives at the end of that chapter, he says, I'm not even talking about husbands and wives. I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so the church is depicted in the feminine form as a bride. In the Old Testament, the people of God were considered the wife of God. And that's just how God looks at us, not in an effeminate Uh, way, but in a way where he loves us with that same type of love. A husband has to be sacrificial for his wife and a wife to the husband. And that's what he's depicting when he is saying, if this is the case, to the chosen lady and her children. Now, who would her children be? Her children would be churches that had started or missionaries that had gone out to somewhere else. And that's probably what it means because there was a Roman persecution that was building at this time. John was thought to be maybe 90 years old at this particular point when he's writing this. And so he's being a little bit cryptic as he's writing this because he doesn't want to call anybody out by name in this particular case to protect them to whom he is writing. In verse 3 again, it says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. Now, This idea of grace, mercy, and peace, you cannot have peace until you have received the mercy and the grace of God. First, grace, now I've talked about this on multiple occasions, grace is God's unmerited favor. It's like you going up to somebody and just saying, here, I'd like you to have this. To give you an example, when I was away in another couple states a couple weeks ago, my phone just died. And I went to Verizon, who is my carrier, and they got me another phone. They hooked it all up, and I was all done. And then at the last minute, the person comes out with this large LG tablet. And they said, this can be yours for free. (laughs) Free, right. Just because she wanted to give it to me because I'm a customer, right? She said, it would cost you $25 a month, but you're going to be given a $25 credit, and so therefore, it kind of washes out, and you can have this thing for free. You just have to keep it for two years. And I said, free? She said, yes, absolutely, free. Well, we get back here. I have 14 days to return it. On the 12th day, they call us up. She made a mistake. 
She was just going to give me something because I was a customer, but Verizon said, no, that's not the case. You would have to start paying for this thing. So it really wasn't her just being graceful to give it to me to try to score points and do better in the company. It was just simply she had made a mistake, and that is not what God's grace is like. He's not going to give it to you and say, oh, i got to take that back. God's grace, the salvation that he gives us, he just walks up and he just gives it to us. But in order to get it, you have to receive it, right? You ever gotten a uh, registered letter, but you weren't there? Certified mail, what do you have to do? You have to go get it. You have to receive it, whatever the case may be. Now, I don't know how many certified letters you like to get. Uh, Chances are it's not a good letter that you would get if it's certified, but you're supposed to go down and receive it. Well, God gives us his grace and we have to receive it. And he gives us his grace along with his mercy. His mercy is not bringing punishment upon us when he should according to his justice. He decides, I'm going to have mercy and withhold that judgment. If you have those two things, if you have the unmerited favor of God, if you have his mercy, that he's not going to judge you according to your sins, then you can be at rest. If you don't have his grace, if you don't have his favor, if he looks at you as an enemy, or if he says, I'm coming to judge you, are you feeling a little anxious there about that? Like, so when's that happening? And we're supposed to tell the world that he's coming to do that for those who have not received the grace and mercy. And so there is no peace for the individual who does not submit to Christ. And most of the world does not submit to Christ. They are not willing to do so, nor will they ever do it. So we have grace and merited favor of God, getting what we don't deserve, mercy not getting what we do deserve, and peace, a byproduct of grace and mercy. So he talks about love and truth in here five times. Now, just to kind of review what he said about love, he said that John's love, or John loves the chosen lady and her children. Now, if this is the church, he loves the people in the church. He also wrote that he loves also those who love the truth. In other words, those who have something in common with him, with him and with Christ. If you love the truth... You're doing good. And as believers, we are supposed to love the truth. We are not supposed to hide from the truth. We're to confront it and let it confront us. And John says, I love those who love the truth of God. He also says that Christ is with us in love. So if we follow his commands and we hold to the truth, he says Christ will be in us. He will be with those who love. And it says also that we're to love each other with that agape love, that sacrificial love. And love is defined as walking in obedience. (coughs) And so the walking in obedience comes into those people who say, okay, not only am I going to believe in God. I, I talked to somebody recently a couple of months ago. And I talked to them about going to Cambodia and they felt they needed to tell me they were a Christian. They said, well, I'm a Christian. And I thought, wow, I'm not so sure. I didn't tell them that yet because it's an ongoing relationship. But there's going to be a time where I'm going to say, so you said you're a Christian. What makes you think so? And I know that this individual is going to say, well, because I'm good. I try to do good. And Scripture says just the opposite. 
We are not good. We are harmful. We are bad. We are under judgment. And so this idea that love, we have to love each other. Love is defined by walking in obedience. We are supposed to love not only those who are believers. We're to love those who are unbelievers. We're even to love our enemies. And so that's the type of love that John is talking about here. And it is a command of God that we love. So if you refuse to love somebody, we are breaking the command of God. So those are the things that he says about love in that small little section there. Then he talks about truth. And truth is what binds believers together. It's what we have in common. Uh, If you go to a Calvary Chapel... Most all Calvary chapels are going to teach what we teach here. We're all going to be on the same level, whether it has to do with doctrine, whether it has to do with practice and leadership. It's all pretty much the same. All of these things have a little bit of room for uh, modification, but for the most part, you go to a Calvary chapel, it's a Calvary chapel. Uh, To give you an example, baptism. We believe in total immersion in baptism. we are also known as Bapticostals. Uh, a Bapticostal would mean we believe in the full immersion of the baptism, but we also believe in the gifts of the Spirit. But as Pastor Chuck wrote, it, we are a charismatic fellowship, but we're not charismaniacs. We don't think that if we had chandeliers, you should be swinging from them or running up and down the aisles and that type of thing. There is a time and place for the gifts of God And we're not to deny that they exist. And there are churches that deny that the gifts of God exist. I just read something yesterday that said uh, the gift of healing is not for today. And I thought to myself, well, you need to talk to some missionaries who go to these farthest outposts and people get healed, even people raised from the dead. And all through the centuries, if you do a search on it, there are people that have raised from the dead And there are preachers that have preached against those who do not believe. And so there are churches that teach that there is no such thing as healing anymore. We believe in the rapture of the church. We believe that Jesus Christ is coming back and going to rule and reign for a thousand years. There are churches that do not believe that. They believe that God is just going to come back, set up his kingdom, and it's a new heaven and new earth, and that's where it is. But uh, we believe that that's neglecting some doctrine. So the truth that we hold together here, we walk in harmony. And we are encouraged to do so. Find out what it is we believe as a Calvary Chapel. And if you hold to those same things, well, great. If you don't hold to those same things, well, you're free to go somewhere else and fellowship with them. Now, imagine a pastor saying that. You can leave if you want to. Well, you know, it's God's church. He builds this church as he wants to. He brings the people together, and he brings the people together for a specific purpose, that you would be involved in fellowship and that you would do the works he has established before the foundation of the earth for you to do. Many people don't do that. Many people are just occupiers. They're not really in the battle, so to speak. But truth is what binds us together. Truth also, or truth holders are loved by the apostle, the apostle John. So the apostle says, I love those who hold to the truth. And Christ is with those who are in the truth. And of course, we know that Jesus lives in us. Now, this is used as a noun here. Those who are in the truth. It's like those who are in the church, those who are in the body of Christ. Christ obviously loves those individuals. Now, does God hate anybody? Ooh, that's a curveball, isn't it? 
No. There are six things that the Lord does hate. Yes, there are seven that are detestable. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill, and heart that devises wicked schemes. Feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among the brethren. Two people in there he hates. Now that, have you heard that from somebody? God loves everybody. Well, he does. But he also hates. Now, he doesn't hate unrighteously. But I'm going to give you an example of this. I'll tell you who I hate. Now, I will lay down my life for them. But I hate the person who comes into the church and gossips and spreads slander and takes advantage of you. We've had people come into the church and go from family to family or individual to individual looking for money. And we have caught some of this. It's happened more than once in the church. They say, oh, we have this huge need. We don't know what we're going to do. Uh, And the church helped them out once and then several families helped them out once. And it was hundreds and hundreds of dollars, probably in the one or two thousand dollar range. And when I got word of it, I'm a nice guy. But I was not nice when I found out about this. And they were fleecing you guys. And I got upset about that. And then there were some that were going through here and they were complaining about Sunday school teachers and what was going on over here and what was going on over there. Just sowing dissension. Called them in the office and said, what is up? I said, I have some people telling me that you're saying these things. And the person said, well, what did they say? I said, you tell me what they say. Well, what did they say? I said, you tell me what. And you have two or three reliable witnesses telling you that. I just hate that. I hate people coming in, being gossips, slanderers, taking advantage of the sheep, and that's my job. That's what I'm supposed to do. I don't turn that responsibility over to anyone. And so God does hate some individuals, but we have to keep it in context. It's not wrong to be upset and in your anger do not sin, that type of thing, but God says he wants everybody in his love. And he even died for the sinner that he says he hates as well. And so we have to keep this proper view of who God is and what he set out to do. Now, he loves them so much that, of course, he died for them, but he repeatedly sent prophets and apostles and pastors and teachers and evangelists to get the people to see So I don't want to degrade the love of God if I bring up something like, well, there are some people the Bible says that he hates in there. I just want to make sure you have a proper balanced view of what is being talked about there. Truth is also in those who are in the faith. And that's like, and that's being used as a noun again. John is filled with joy concerning those who bite in the truth. And Christ is with those who are in the truth. So all of those things are true. If you abide in Christ, you abide in the truth. If you abide in Christ, you abide in his love. If you abide in love, you abide in Christ. If you abide in truth, you abide in Christ too. It's just being redundant over and over and over. Now, John is setting all of this up. He's saying, I know you guys, you are blessed, and your children, I love you guys, you're walking in the truth. And by the way, when your children start growing up and they learn things, you are just ecstatic right? When they learn how to talk, you get the first words and you hear the first words that they say, did you hear that? You know, it's a mama. No, I clearly heard data. 
That's what I heard. No, I heard mama. No, I heard dad. It's probably just no is what they said. But this, this idea that they start walking, you know, they start moving, they start growing, and you become filled with joy when that happens, I, especially when they first start to walk, right? They start to go through the house. The, the hands are out to the side, and they're a little wobbly. And you're going, yes, and you're so excited. And then they go someplace like to SeaWorld and you let them walk for a little bit outside of the stroller and you're just kind of clearing a path for them to walk and you're just thrilled with that. When somebody does that as a believer in Christ, anybody who's in leadership goes, yeah, that's a, keep walking. Yeah, pretty soon you're going to be running. This is good. But the person who never gets up and tries, it's like, oh, come on, you you can do this. And the joy kind of dissipates when you see there's no effort put forth. And so you want to make sure, all of us, we need to make sure that we're getting up and we're walking, not only walking, but we're running and we're running the race. Now, with that, he sets this up in order to deliver a message that there are some problems. There are some heretics that are coming around and going through the church. There are those people that are creating issues inside of the church, false doctrines, were coming in. And he goes on to let them know, to warn them in verse 7. He says, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. And so he affirms his love for the church. It's probably a church of Ephesus or one of the daughters, uh, daughter churches. But he says, Look, I love you guys. You're walking in the truth. It's all good. But I want to tell you, there are many deceivers. So he's talking about another group of people that have gone out into the world. Any such person is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Now, he's not, quote, unquote, capital A, Antichrist. But they are of the spirit of Antichrist. He says, watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for. In other words, you can lose your reward for what you have done. And you can lose it. By paying attention to the deceivers. When we get to heaven, we're all going to have reward of some kind. Now, it's not going to be, I believe, material necessarily. It's going to be something that is spiritual in nature. It could be that he's going to give you a lot of responsibility in some fashion. I think that's going to be the case for all of us. To whom much is given, much is required. It'll be the same there. God's truth is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So is Jesus Christ. And so that's how our reward is going to work. You're going to have certain privileges and responsibilities that will be given to you depending on how you use your gifts and how the reward is divvied out to you according to how you use those gifts. If you use the gifts selfishly, you can lose reward. If you walk away from the truth, you can lose reward. And it's important that you have an eye on the goal, eye on the prize, that you don't live your life constantly scraping away at your reward that you're going forward with this. He says, watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk to you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister sends their greeting. So there's a lot that's packed in here. This idea of a deceiver that he talks about in verse 7. The word that is used in the Greek is a vagabond, a tramp, 
an imposter, a corrupter, a deceiver. Now, if somebody came into the church and they were doing all of these things and you walked up to them and you said, you are an imposter, you are a tramp, you need to get out of here. That's what he is saying in the original language. When you uh, hear the word deceiver, you go, that's not so bad. He's not talking like that. This is the apostle John, the apostle of love. He goes, you're a tramp. How often do you call somebody a tramp? Hopefully it's not very often. And hopefully it's not somebody you know. You know, even somebody you don't know, you're kind of ruining your witness for Christ. But here, John does it. He says, these people are tramps. They're vagabonds. And he is just using the pejorative language to describe who these people are. Do you think he kind of hates them? Yeah. He kind of does what you are doing to the body of Christ. He's taking advantage of the body of Christ. Now, they deny the incarnation which means there was a group of people like the Gnostics, which were going around, and I talked to you about those guys uh, previously. But the Gnostics didn't believe that Jesus was actually flesh, human flesh, that that was just kind of like the matrix, that it was just kind of made up. He came into this world, but he was superhuman. He was super spiritual, and it was just kind of a facade that was placed there so that you could relate to him. Also, these deniers are deceivers, and they work at it. It is a trade for them, an occupation. We are exhorted not to let anyone deceive us by what they say about the incarnation, that it is not true or that it never happened. And if we do start believing that stuff, we can have our reward taken away. Now, I know of people who have been in this church that have walked away from the faith. They are no longer going to church anywhere. Ever since my... Christian experience began in 1979. I have known people that said, oh yeah, church, I did that for a while. That was, you know, a phase in my life. And they have gone beyond what is taught. They have moved on. They have walked away from the faith. They believe they have become more enlightened. And they have traded the unknown for what is known. And now they're out there floating with no hope whatsoever. I'm not going to talk about eternal security and the loss of salvation and all that. I don't believe you can lose your salvation if you're truly saved. That's an argument for another day. But this idea that deceivers come along, and why do they deceive? They deceive because they want something. They want you. They want your obedience. They want your loyalty. They want your money. They want something of some kind. Now, in my recent trip, that I took, I talked to somebody who brought to my attention, I didn't know it was so pervasive, but there is something out there that is going on in Christendom, and you may not have gotten word about it yet. It was kind of new to me, but I I heard bits and pieces uh, previous to this, but to digress just a moment, there were people that were around at the time of this writing called the people of the circumcision, and they were Jews who had accepted Christ and they wanted to bring them into their fold, they would go to the churches and try to snatch them into their own corner. They would stir up dissension in the church and they would start telling people, this is the way you need to live. Peter got caught up in this. Peter started requiring people to live as a Jew when he didn't do it himself. And he was kind of like controlling the people. As part of Calvary Chapel, I told you, we don't have a membership list. We don't make you go through classes and say, if you want to join our church, then that's it. We don't check on your tithe record to make sure you're giving what you're supposed to give. We leave that responsibility to you. 
You are the ones that are supposed to drop it in the agape box. We don't call you up and say, have you been doing what you're supposed to do? Just want to make sure, you know, I'm, I'm here to help you, brother, or I'm here to help you, sister, to make sure you fall in line with what you should be doing. Now, these were the Judaizers. The Judaizers, and I'm not kidding about this, when they would go to the Temple Mount during the time of Christ and the Pharisees were around for those hundreds of years, they would actually check to see who was circumcised, who was not. Because if you were an uncircumcised God-fearer, you were not allowed into the inner court. And if you went into the inner court, they would kill you. So they would check. That's what they would do to make sure that you were circumcised. Now, we don't do that either. We, we don't call you up and make sure you're circumcised, make sure you're given the right amount. How much have you done in the church? Are you attending everything that you need to attend? If you attend whatever is going on at the church, you're doing so for your benefit. Some people think, no, I'm just, you know, I don't know if I like some of the people there. I, I don't know if I like what's going on. Yeah, I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to withdraw. That's the worst thing anybody can do is withdraw. We want to make sure that we are diving headlong and the Lord is going to bring trials for us when we do. Do you know what we're put together for? We're put together to sharpen each other. Whenever we sharpen each other, what happens? Sparks. You ever sharpened a blade on a, a stone that spins? You get all kinds of sparks. You ever swing a pickaxe into a rock? You get sparks. And that's what we're supposed to do with each other. Not on purpose. Come here, brother. I need to sharpen you a little bit. But, you know, we're not doing that because we're plotting to do so. But those who would seek con- to control, they do that. They come in and say, we're going to help you in your walk. We just want to help you. We just want you to give a little more of your time, of your resources, and it goes to extremes. There used to be the Boston Movement of the Church of Christ. I think there are some affiliates which are still out there. And I have no problem talking about them because they would have disciples. If you came to this church, they would give you somebody who was over you, and they would regularly call on you saying, what are you reading today, brother? Need to make sure that you're following through with you know, the discipleship program. And by the way, we're going to have a cleaning time at church to... Next week at 5 a.m., we're going to expect to see you there, okay? And make sure you wear some painting clothes because we're going to be doing some painting. And after that, we're going to go out witnessing so we have your whole day planned out for you. And that's, I'm, I'm kind of constructing it, but that's kind of what they would do. I heard one story of somebody who had a, a boat. And the church came along and uh, he was in his house and he heard somebody going out messing with the boat. And it was the guys from the church saying, we have need of your boat. Yeah. Now, what for what, a church function? They were going to get his boat for the church function. He goes, no, you're not. You're out of here. Never went back to the church. Now, that's an extreme case. But there are people out there that would seek to control you. I don't want that responsibility. If you want to be controlled by God, praise the Lord. If you want to be controlled by me, you're only asking for trouble. And I don't want you to have... I don't want you to have that trouble. My, myself, my management style is to just give ministry to somebody and you own it. You take it. You have an idea? Good. You do it. Obviously, God's speaking to you about it. And whenever I say that to somebody, you know what they do? 
Oh, no, no. It's just an idea. Well, I think God's speaking to you about the idea. Oh, no, he's not talking to me about that. It's, you know, you do it, Pastor. You, you're the one that needs to do the visitation. You need to be the one to hold the prayer meeting. You need to do the teaching five nights a week. You're the one that needs to build the church physically. You're the one that needs to, you know, and fill in the blank. That's not the way it is. I'm supposed to give the ministry away. Whoever wants it, it's yours. Now, the teaching, if God brings somebody along and he says, give it to them, I'm giving it to them. Worship, same thing. Construction, same thing. I'm supposed to give it away. I don't want to control. I just want to follow Christ. Now, with that, the circumcision group, they were condemned by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. And, excuse me, Galatians, not Ephesians, but in the book of Galatians, he condemned them for their behavior. Now, this is what I'm going to tell you what I learned when I was in a couple other states here. There is a movement which is out there I'm turning to it. There it is. Have you guys ever heard of C.J. Mahaney? Okay, you can write that one down. C.J. Mahaney. Sovereign Grace Ministries. Also, Peacemaker Ministries. It's our brothers and sisters and more the covenant movement theologically. We are not covenant totally or dispensational totally. Those two are usually set at odds with each other. I don't like the labels. God works in different ways in different economies over different periods of time. Under the Mosaic Covenant, he worked one way. Under the Covenant of Blood, which we are under, he works another way. Under the Adamic Covenant, he worked another way. Under the Noahic Covenant, he worked another way. Those are different dispensations or different economies. But the person in the covenant end would say, he made a covenant with Noah, he made a covenant with Abraham, he made a covenant with Adam, he made a covenant with us, and so everything is ruled by covenants, and they have a tendency to separate both. I believe both are true. There are covenants and there are dispensations. I don't get involved in that argument. It's ridiculous. It's just a waste of time as far as I'm concerned. But those people who like making covenants are gravitating towards this particular type of sovereign grace ministries. There's a Calvary Chapel that I know of that just switched over to the sovereign grace type of ministry. It's a control-oriented style of leadership. There is spiritual elitism. There's manipulation of members. There's perceived persecution. There's lifestyle rigidity. There is suppression of dissent. There is harsh discipline of members denunciation of other churches and a painful exit process. Those are the things that some churches are getting involved in. Some of the churches are actually having you repeat, not you, but they're having you repeat the covenant every Sunday morning that you will be faithful to the body. You are making a covenant with the body to the pastors and to the elders. Now, as I read scripture, You can make a covenant with somebody, but if you want to be a member of a particular church, you have to make the covenant part of your life if you want to belong to that church. And then, you know, I was perusing a little more. This is an example of a covenant church. I just took this off the Internet. I'm not going to name the church. It says, we're a family 
at this particular fellowship, we enter into covenant with God and one another to live lives worthy of our calling. For as long as we are called the church, we hereby promise that by the grace of God, we will live in deep relationship with God to seek to know God deeply, to strive to life, to strive to live a life of holiness, to seek forgiveness and restoration when I fall to maintain right relationships with my fellow believers, to maintain a spirit of love, acceptance, and forgiveness, to be attentive to the needs and concern of my brothers and sisters. And that's the one I, it's like, careful of that one. To use my gifts, abilities, and resources to support the ministry of church, of this particular church. You make a covenant to do that. Now, the last time I made a covenant, it was with my wife. I've made a covenant with no one else. Jesus Christ made a covenant with me. I have no power to fulfill it. He's the one that has to fulfill it. But there are churches that are pressing individuals to make covenants with the body of Christ. It goes on. And some of this church stuff that's listed here, it's taken um, right off of their website. Talking about membership. It says, how long does uh, covenant membership last? In other words, you're a member of the church if you buy into the covenant and you repeat it and you hold to it and you make it. The covenant of membership at church, at this particular church, is a covenant of grace and lasts as long as the Spirit leads you to be in part of this church community. We recognize that the Spirit may lead you to a fellowship elsewhere and we graciously endorse obedience to such leading. However, we also recognize that God does not lead the believer to abandon fellowship completely, nor to leave a church in order to avoid repentance. We do not believe that covenant should be forsaken in these circumstances. In other words, if somebody is not dealing with sin, they're struggling with the sin, and they're not being repentant enough, the church comes in and lays the hammer down. Now, what I've read, some of these things I've read, you're probably going, well, that sounds good. And it is good. And are we our brother's keeper? Well, we're supposed to help each other. But we're not supposed to insist on what is taking place. And it goes on to talk about some of the things in this particular church website that need to be followed in order to be a member. And it says, I want to give uh, like this one. When people have chosen to unite with a local fellowship, they are openly choosing to submit to the leadership of that fellowship. This gives the elders a green light to lovingly speak into the lives of those believers. Now, you catch that? If you're blowing it or you're not doing what I want, I'm going to lovingly talk into your life and tell you what you need to do. Right? This gives the elders a green light to lovingly speak into the lives of those believers when matters such as commitment, sin, relational matters, or areas of service need to be addressed. The elders have greater freedom to address these matters in the lives of those who have united with the church. In other words, let me translate. We want to control you. There's a movement that is going out there. Sovereign Grace Ministries. Peacemakers Ministries. There's one other name. It's called the Nine Marks. If you hear about anything like that, I would tell you, run, forest, run. Get out of there. That is not what the church is supposed to be about. Now, are these people believers or are they deceivers? I think they're believers that are deceived. I think that's what the case is. And whenever somebody seeks to control you, and this is what John was warning, 
the church about. Be careful of these people who would seek to control your life. Again, I don't want that responsibility to control. All who want to come along freely and say, I am here, I am signing up, where are we going? I'm going, this is where we're going. Would you like to come? Well, people can say, yeah, I want to come. But it's not my job to put the thumb down on you and to bring condemnation or to bring correction when I think you're not doing what I want. And this is what's being talked about here in these particular ministries. And so I didn't get through Third John today. I'm going to remind you of these things next week. I'll probably have a little more information on this for you. But I want you to make, I, I want to make sure that you guys are aware. There are deceivers out there. You are greatly loved. Those of you who dwell in the truth, you live in Christ. We have this bond in common. We are working for a common goal of getting the gospel out there to helping those who need help, to bring assistance physically, emotionally, spiritually, in whatever way we can for the benefit of the body, for building them up in the most holy faith. Your responsibility, as is mine amongst my peers, is to make sure I'm striving for that mark, pressing for the prize. I would encourage you guys to always be doing this, to never just sit back and relax and say, I've taken my life, it's okay right now, it's just all good and I can relax, I don't have to do too much. Remember, we are supposed to be known who we are by what we do for those around us. And we are supposed to do, or what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to love like Christ did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the insight, the wisdom that the Apostle John has given. And I want to pray, Lord, for individuals who feel trapped in some of these churches that uh, require them to make covenants and recite them and they become just puppets under the thumb of those who would want the power. I pray that they could be released from that, Lord. I also pray that you would help us to walk in the freedom to which you have called us, that you are the one we are accountable to, certainly, and also to the leaders that are above us. We are accountable, but we do so from a willing heart, not out of duress. Father, help us to communicate this to others, that we have been saved so that we might be freed from the rules in this life. We thank you for the insight that you bring in Jesus' name. Amen.